Let's look at our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin. This is Galatians 5, 7 through 12. Galatians 5, 7 through 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. The word of the Lord. Strong talk from Paul. I want to talk to you a little bit about human anatomy, but not that particular anatomy. I want to talk about the human heart, if you will. I've been doing some study on the human heart. You wonder why, because I'm trying to determine if I have one or not. The human heart is about the approximate size of two fists, and yet it is a perennial powerhouse, only weighing, weighing 10 ounces, it beats 100,000 times a day and circulates approximately 2,000 gallons of blood. And it's doing this all uh, autonomously, even as we're sitting here listening to this sermon. It is the human heart that is responsible for keeping blood flowing through the 60,000 miles of blood vessels that are in our body, keeping it pressurized, if you will. In fact, blood can be squirted to a distance of 30 feet by the pressure that is created by a heartbeat. I tried this yesterday to see if that actually was true because I don't want to give you false info and it's actually incorrect. It's about 28 feet. It's not 30 feet. Indeed, the energy created by the pumping action of the heart in a human body is, in one day is enough to drive a truck for a distance of 20 miles. I don't really believe that stat, by the way, but it's on the internet, so it must be true. From heart to lungs and back to the heart, the blood takes only six seconds for this entire journey. From the heart to the brain and back to the heart, it takes only eight seconds. And for the heart to the toes and back to the heart, it only takes 16 seconds to go through all of these 60,000 miles of blood uh, vessels and arteries and capillaries. It's, it's a wonder, it's a powerhouse. But we know that heart disease is one of the leading causes of death in our country. See, there's something that happens when the pump gets damaged and the blood can't flow because it truly does give life. And when the pump is damaged, the blood doesn't flow and ultimately the body dies. Now, why am I talking about the heart? I think I'm talking about the heart because I, it is an apt illustration to answer the question, what is it that powers faith? What powers the faith of Christianity to live a supernatural life, to love with a God-like love? What Paul is saying in this passage is the answer is grace. Grace is the heartbeat that gives life to faith. It is grace that takes what is on the inside and moves it to the outside. But if grace is damaged, it ultimately affects our faith. 
If we care for the heart, and we know that we're supposed to care for a heart as it powers our body, so we must care for grace because it powers faith. And so that's what we're going to talk about, that grace is the heartbeat that gives life to faith. And we're going to cover three points. The first is, number one, without grace, faith will ultimately fail. Without grace, faith will fail. Number two, we're going to cover the reality that grace has enemies. That we must protect grace because grace has enemies. Because, number three, grace is offensive. Grace is offensive. Well, let's begin with point number one. Without grace, faith will fail. And it seems that faith is failing in the church of Galatia. As Paul says here in verse 7, Galatians, you were running well in this race of faith. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Notice he says that you were running well. For faith is a race, is it not? It's not a sprint, it's rather a marathon that continues on from perpetuity of when one believes to when one dies or when Christ comes back, whichever comes first. Faith is supposed to enter into our lives and extend through the way we live from moment to moment, day to day, in how we interact with God, with ourselves, and with one another. And it says that you were running well, Galatians. In other words, you heard the message of grace. You heard the truth of the gospel, salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. And you took it and ran with it. So much so... In fact, not so much so, but the reality of the natural extension of faith is obeying the truth. You were running well, Galatians. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Obeying the truth. It's not just truth. It's not just believing, having a a set of suppositions or beliefs about a spiritual topic. And it's not just obedience, is it? It's not just moral uprightness, doing the right things at the right time. But rather, it's an obedience that comes from knowing the truth. What he's saying is that our behaviors ultimately flow from our beliefs. You were obeying the truth of the gospel and it was permeating your life and extending into the way that you were loving each other, that you were loving God, that you were loving ourselves. As verse 6 says, that was right before this verse that I preached on last week. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What Paul is saying is that in the race of faith, to run the race of faith well is to love. It's to love God by seeking His honor and His pleasure above our own. It's loving others by putting their needs before ours, by having hearts and vision and compassion for those who are around us. It's genuinely living like that good Samaritan, asking and answering the question, who is my neighbor? Not simply walking by, but entering into the world of people around us to love them. And what Paul is saying is that what powers our love for God And our love for others is grace. That's what Paul uh, preached to them when he came to the church at Galatia, did he not? 
That salvation is found in no one else. It's not found in your gifts, your abilities, the amount of righteousness that you can muster through your religious living, but rather through the cross of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death on the cross so that you might be accepted by God the Father based on his record and not on your own. When the Galatians heard this message, that salvation was not based on their efforts, but on Christ's efforts, they grabbed that message and they ran with it. They internalized it. They believed and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were transformed. Because Christianity is much deeper than simply a set of suppositions. It's a new creation as God takes our old heart and he puts in a new heart. What powers our love is grace. Now, I think we get this and understand this, but there's a critical difference between religious life and gospel-filled life. Here's the difference. This is the grace-filled life. I am loved, therefore I obey. It is because in view of the love of God, what he's done for me, that he cared about me even though I was a sinner, that he got up on a cross and he died for my sins, every single one of them, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And when I understand that when Jesus died on that cross, that I really was on his mind, it gives me love back for him. It gives me gratitude and thanksgiving because he loved me when I had nothing to give and I still have nothing to give to add to my salvation. And when I understand that I am loved, because that really is what we are seeking, is it not? Unconditional love. People, someone who loves us for who we are, not what we bring to the table. When I get that, I am loved, therefore I obey. Because grace is the heartbeat that gives life to faith. But religious living is the exact opposite. It's not, I am loved, therefore I obey. It is, I obey, therefore I am loved. And there's, unfortunately, many who live this religious life. And it's camouflaged as Christianity. Because what is motivating that religious obedience is not love, but it's fear. What happens if I don't obey enough? I guess I'm not going to be loved, right? In fact, if the greatest commandment is to love God and to love our neighbor... If we're living what looks to be a Christian life not motivated by grace, the truth is we're living in sin. Because what concerns God most of all is the heart. I'm not really loving God. I'm fearing God. It's love when there are no strings attached, right? I'm not really loving my neighbor. I'm simply checking boxes and doing religious things so I can hopefully be accepted by God. It's all about me. It's not about him. Eventually, that type of thinking will fail. That's what Paul says here in verse 6. Excuse me, is it verse, uh, verse 7? You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? These Judaizers, as we're calling them, have come into the church and they've communicated that the cross of Jesus Christ is not enough. 
you have forgotten to, that you also have to obey these variety of ceremonial and religious mosaic laws. You have to not only believe in Jesus Christ, but you've got to check the boxes. You've got to attend the feasts. You've got to restrict your activities on the Sabbath. You have to observe these days. If you don't, and you have to be circumcised, or you will not be saved. And this belief has permeated into the church. And what Paul is saying is that it's hindering you from running, from obeying the truth. This is not a simple religious or perspective argument that's going on. It's not cerebral. It's affecting the way that the Galatians love one another and love the church. Ultimately, it will destroy them. Because if your belief changes, it's only a matter of time before your behavior changes. And you stop the, uh, the facade. Was it not earlier that this message had so permeated into the Galatian church that even the Apostle Peter, in his desire to placate the Judaizers, decided not to eat with the Gentile believers? The Apostle Peter exercising racism in the church. And why? Because grace is the heartbeat that gives life to faith. I don't know if you're familiar with the term atheriosclerosis. Maybe you might have it and not even know it. It's a condition that develops when a substance called plaque builds up on the inside walls of the arteries. This buildup narrows the arteries, making it harder for blood to flow through. If a blood clot forms, it can uh, block the blood flow, and this can cause a heart attack or stroke. It's a buildup. Now, it doesn't happen at just one time, does it? It's slowly building, slowly building. And as that pressure, that ability to push blood through uh, is hindered more and more, eventually you will have a breakdown. Now what does all of this have to do with us? I think we must heed the warnings in the scriptures where Paul says, you were running well. Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, maybe we are running a good race. I think we are. But we must be careful because grace is the heartbeat that gives life to faith. It's what powers us. I don't know if you remember a time in your life where you did not know the grace of God. I remember before there was grace, there was no power for life. There was no love for my fellow man. There was no freedom from my sin. God was always that taskmaster up high in the sky telling me, what I had done wrong. But when I heard the gospel and I believed and I put my hope in Jesus Christ, there was the freedom to obey the truth, the obedience of faith. It is grace that helps us to see who my neighbor is. It is grace that helps me to love my wife even when she's being unlovable, which is never. It's grace that helps me to love my children when they're being terrible and incorrigible, which is seldom. It is grace that helps me to love my coworkers, even the ones that I don't like that much. And it's grace 
that gives me the power to love my enemies. It is the love for someone who did not deserve to be loved and accepted that gives me the power to love those out there. And that power comes from within. So is there anything that is hindering you in your faith? Is there anything that is slowly, imperceptibly, maybe not so imperceptibly, closing the vessels of grace? Has love dried up in your heart for God, for one another, for those people in our life where we really need the love and grace of God to love? See, so often when that happens, we redouble our efforts. We try to fix the outside. We try to wash the walls. Come on, what's the matter with you? Pick it up. But the reality is that guilt and shame can never change the human heart. Only love can do that. The solution is not to look outside. The solution is to look inside. Because grace is the heartbeat that gives life to faith. And so you and me must go back to the gospel. Do you know it? Every morning when I start, and I like to spend time with the Lord in the morning, the first place where I start is going back to the gospel. I must start my day at the cross, remembering that it was I who belonged up there, Acknowledging that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who loved me enough to get up on that cross and die in my place. And that His blood is sufficient to cover all sin. And that He has made me a new creation in Him. I am righteous in His sight. I am free from the condemnation of the law. I must go back to the gospel. I must cling to the cross. Because I know that whatever is inside will ultimately make its way to the outside. Because grace is the heartbeat that gives life to faith. Well, that brings me to my second point, that grace has enemies. Paul asks the question, doesn't he, in verse 7, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. This subtle message that you're hearing, that you have to work your way to heaven, that you're not good enough, but you can be good enough if you do the right things, is not from Him who calls you. That's not from God. That's not from Jesus Christ. The message of Jesus Christ was the good news of the gospel, that my blood is sufficient. No, it's coming from somewhere else, masquerading sometimes as Him. It certainly sounds biblical. I think when these Judaizers walked into town and started preaching this message of the gospel and works, they were religious, it sounded right. I think religious moralism is probably the most danger to the Christian rather than the world and all its baubles and so forth. And we must be careful from where we're getting our information. There are books that are out there that masquerade as Christian books but are not Christian books at all for they don't preach a gospel of grace. Christianity has been bandied about for centuries, for millennia, if you will, 
in the political process. It's been used as a tool, if you will, to, to curry favor with different groups, to bring them to their side. But the danger is, if there is a message being preached, other than the grace of Jesus Christ and the grace alone, it's ultimately an enemy of the gospel. It's black and white. There's no gray as regards here. It's black or white. It's either all grace or it's not. Because grace is either your everything or it's your nothing. That was the message last Sunday. But there are other enemies, aren't there, than religious moralism? There's the world that we live in. Our shiny, glittering communities that we live in. Great neck would be mine. Where everybody's self-made. And everybody has it all together. And everybody's beautiful and having a great time. It's easy to see that. Just look at their social media account. Right? This facade of all that the world has to offer. That we can find joy and satisfaction in it. As long as we live its life. The consumerism that we're continually assailed by in the world. That says if you own these things and have these things, you will find joy and peace and freedom. It's not about giving your life away to Jesus Christ and trusting in Him and His cross. It's a game of accumulation. And he who dies with the most toys wins. It's the secularism of our world that says all there is that is real is only that which you can see. Why trust in this person who you've never met before, who did this act all the way back then? It's now. There is nothing beyond the grave. So live your life now, not by faith, not obedience from the truth, but rather from the tenets of the world. Kill or be killed. Survival of the fittest. Our entire world the Bible says, has set itself up against Christ. Why is Christianity so offensive? Well, we're going to get to that in the next section, but the cross, excuse me, grace has enemies. But this persuasion, verse 8, is not from him who calls you. We have to know the call of Jesus Christ. Did he not say, I am the good shepherd? I call to my sheep, and my sheep hear my voice, and they will follow me. In the midst of all of the noise and the chaff of the world, the gospel continues to ring, uh, ring clearly to our ears through the power of the Holy Spirit. We must listen and hearken to the call of Jesus Christ. Because, as verse 9 says, a little leaven. Am I saying that word right? Leaven? A little leaven, well, it's clearly spelled leaven, okay? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. All it takes is a little to permeate throughout. Just a little bit to destroy. As I said, a heart attack starts years before the heart attack actually happens, right? It's an accumulation of bad habits ultimately coming home to roost. A little leaven, leaven will ultimately leaven the whole lump. But he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. 
And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Why does Paul have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view? He has confidence because he knows that to those who have been called by Jesus Christ, that Christ will not let them go. See, that's the beauty and the wonder of grace. That grace keeps working even when we run the other direction. The Bible says, even if we're faithless, he is faithful for he cannot deny himself. He continues to run after us. If we have, if we are truly believers, if we've given our life to Jesus Christ, if we are his, we will fluctuate in our faith. We will be assailed by the winds and the storms of the world and sometimes we will falter, but his grace never fails. That's why he gave us his Holy Spirit, right? As a deposit to give us assurance of his grace, to tie us to himself. That's why he gives us the church so that we can come back again and again to hear the word of truth, to push back against the world. It's why he gives us pastors to preach the truth, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. It's why he gives us the word that we can dig into day after day and hear the words of truth that are contained in his Bible. And I am convinced, Paul says, that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. Christ will defend us. Christ will protect us. We simply have to keep running. Because only grace is the heartbeat that will give life to faith. I don't know if you're familiar with the Jarvik 7. Anyone familiar with the Jarvik 7? Anyone got a Jarvik 7, by the way? The Jarvik 7 was really the first artificial heart, successful artificial heart, developed by Robert Jarvik and his mentor. Uh, in 1982, it was Seattle dentist Dr. Barney Clark who was the first person implanted with the Jarvik 7, the first artificial heart that was intended to last a lifetime. The patient survived 112 days. Pretty close, I guess. It lasted a lifetime, right? 112 days. He said it has been hard, but the heart itself has pumped right along. There were subsequent iterations of the Jarvik 7 that were put in fact, I think the next one, it was actually for 620 days, it brought two more years of life. People want a normal life, and just being alive is not good enough. But the reality is, despite the advances of a artificial heart, the first one in 1982, less than 2,000 artificial hearts have been implanted since then. And the procedure is generally used as a bridge until a donor heart can be secured. So you can put in an artificial heart and it'll work for a while. But it's not alive. It doesn't truly belong in the human body. It's a temporary replacement at best. And we can do the same thing, replacing grace in the Christian life. We can put in a heart where friendships is the most important thing in our life, that that's where we will achieve salvation in the relationships that we have with one another. But it's not enough to power our life, is it? We can try to put in a heart of pleasure, 
of sex and stuff and food and to be fed with that and for that to power our life, the way we live, the way we relate with one another. But ultimately, it will fail. As will the achievements that we, have, that we do, the world that says if you achieve something great in life, if you build a name for yourself, it will power your life. It will bring wholeness and fulfillment. It won't do it. Neither will religion. Ultimately, it will die. And so we must recognize our enemies that want to replace the heart of grace with something else. And we must protect our heart from heart disease. We must eat well. God's word has been given to each one of us. And it's not enough simply to come and hear God's word on Sunday. We have to sustain ourselves on God's word day after day, hearing the gospel of grace. We have to learn to feed ourselves. That's what it means to grow up and to mature in faith, right? To take time to be alone with God, for Him to whisper those words, you are my beloved. It is my grace that is enough for you. We need one another in fellowship. It's why we have community groups. It's why we encourage getting together as we help one another see the truth of the gospel. Sometimes we can't spot the fact that there's a heart surgery going on with us, that we're replacing one for the other. We must start our day at the cross because, the great, because grace has enemies. This brings me to my final point, that grace is offensive. Verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I don't know if you remember that um, uh, during 9-11, when this cross of uh, iron was discovered, there was this mangle, you know, when they were clearing out stuff and they, and they found this metal that had been ripped up. It was like two girders, but it was in the shape of a cross. Well, that was pretty, it was a pretty powerful emoji. Uh, emoji, that's not the right. Emoji, good heavens. It was an image. Wow, I'm such a generation Y. This is exciting. But it wasn't great for everybody. There were some people that demanded it uh, be taken down. It was a religious group called the American Atheists. The atheist religious group, the American Atheists, sued over the inclusion of the cross-shaped steel beams dubbed the World Trade Center Cross. Jane Everhart, the communications director, who said she was traumatized by the events of 9-11 that she personally saw, said she would not be able to visit the Memorial Museum as long as the cross is included in the exhibit and derided the cross as nothing more than an ugly piece of wreckage that does not represent anything but horror and death. Why does that represent horror and death to this person and to so many other people? Because the cross is offensive. Because God has said, I will meet the human race in only one place, and that is at the cross. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, I'll meet you in your seats of power, the United Nations, or the White House. I'll meet you at the pinnacle of your achievements as a human race. No, I'll rather meet you at an instrument of torture, the cross. 
The cross is an offense because it says to the world that you're a sinner. It's really what the cross said to that thief dying on the cross right next to Jesus, didn't it? It's interesting how this man was dying on the cross and as he saw on a cross right next to Jesus and as he saw Jesus on the cross, what did he say? This man has done nothing wrong, but I am getting what I deserve. Please remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. See, the cross said to that thief, and it says to us all, you're a sinner. You better repent. But first, it condemns our sins and makes us confess and acknowledge that we are a sinner. Something that we don't like to do. There is no pride in the world as terrible as religious pride. But the cross has come down through the centuries, passing its unfaltering judgment upon the vanities and prides and lusts and greeds and self-indulgent pleasures of man, saying that you're a sinner. The cross has become the conscience of the world. But the scriptures tell us that the men love darkness because their deeds were evil. That we don't want the light of the cross. We don't want it to shine into our hearts. And so it becomes a stumbling block. We try to stamp it out and destroy it or hide from it. But the cross goes down into the dark recesses of our hearts where even our wife or our husband cannot go. And it shows us our sin and exposes it to the light. The cross is an offense because it says to the world that you're a sinner. But the cross is also offensive because it says to the world that you need a savior. That you are not enough. That there's no amount of riches that you can acquire. That there's no amount of accomplishments that you can accrue. That you are not enough. Have you ever seen a child as it struggles against its parents saying, I can do it myself. That's what we say to God. I can do this myself. And the cross says, no, you can't. You cannot bear this weight. Your life is not enough. And we hate this. So we build our towers of Babel, our monuments of achievements of what humanity can do. And they fall into the sea and we rebuild them again. We're like children at the beach building castles made of sand. The Christian cross is offensive because it says to the world you need a savior. And finally, it says to the world that man can never do anything enough to merit salvation. For what sacrifice can we bring that will allay our sin? But you see, when you look at the cross through eyes of grace, when you look at the cross as one who has been touched by the love of God. It's the cross that shows us the love of God, does it not? That God loved us so much that there was no lengths or depths that he would not go to to rescue us. The cross is the love of God and the cross is the hope of man. That in Jesus Christ, the God-man, all of my sins can be wiped away. 
all of my fears of condemnation can be put to rest. It is in the cross where I find hope and it is in the cross where I find rest. That it truly is finished. That even though I still live, the accounting for my life is paid for. There's something in us when we sin that makes it hard to come back to the cross. But when we finally decide to run back, he always receives us with open arms, does he not? Every sin has been paid for, past, present, and future. I conclude with this point, that the secret to the life that we live outside is the grace that we have inside. Because without grace, our faith will surely fail. Yes, the great grace has enemies. Yes, grace is offensive to the world, but not to us. So cling to the cross. Jettison everything else if you must. But grace is the heartbeat that gives life to faith. Let us live by it forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, without the cross, without the grace of Jesus Christ, we would all surely be lost. For who can stand before you and say that I have lived in the way that you made me to live? But your love demonstrated to us on the cross shows that you are more than enough to give satisfaction and contentment to our heart. And so God, help us to cling to the cross. Help us to protect our heart, knowing that you watch over us and you will defend us to the end. I pray all of this in Christ's name.